a pastor once asked a lawyer, what do you do if you make a mistake on a case? And the lawyer answered, well, I fix it if it's big, and I tend to ignore it if I believe it's insignificant. So, pastor, what do you do when you make a mistake? And the pastor responded, and he said, well, I I pretty much do the same thing. Let me give you an example. Just the other day, I meant to say that Satan is the father of all lawyers, and instead, I said, Satan is the father of all lawyers. So I let it go. No, really, um, you're probably wondering, Mike, that sounds really cruel. And uh, maybe you stepped over the line, and perhaps I should apologize to the devil. No, actually, we do have lawyers who are really good friends. Believe it or not, I have known at least four who are passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And one of them actually lived for us for two years. So after the sermon, I'm probably going to have to call her and apologize, aren't I? (laughs) But the truth is, uh, she lived with us for two years. And uh, she actually came to Zach and Kate's wedding, what, three, three years ago now? Almost three years ago. Um, stayed with us. Great to see Ann Poindexter. Again, many of you had a chance to meet her. Wonderful, wonderful lady. Um, but my point really is not about lawyers. It is really about the fact that Satan is the father of lies. That is his native tongue. Satan is our adversary. His purpose is to take you down. His purpose is to put a bullseye on your back, and you wear that bullseye if you follow Jesus Christ. You cannot get away from it. He recognizes that he has lost you from his domain, and you have now been brought into the kingdom of God in which there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Paul tells us. And he wants to, as much as he can, oppose you fiercely, if necessary, take you down if he can, but at least neutralize your ability to promote this thing called the kingdom of God and extend it to the ends of the earth. That's his goal. (coughs) Ephesians 6.12 says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against rulers and authorities and the dark, excuse me, and the world powers of this darkness. That word world powers literally means that demons influence even back and demonize some world leaders. They themselves are the force behind much evil and evil people in this world, even evil leaders in this world. Meredith was talking about Uganda, Idi Amin, and his reign of terror in 1972. Uh, Just an incredible persecution. I read a book by Kefa Simpangi about (coughs) how God, in the midst of that persecution, saved him. And rescued him in the midst of this persecution. (coughs) And he began to pastor a church called uh, Redeemer Church. And it grew to a very small number of, uh, what, 14,000. And the people in that church witnessed, the children who grew up in the faith witnessed their parents' horrendous tortures at the hands of Idi Amin. This is the type of persecution that we really should expect when we are bold and we come against the devil. And the question that we're going to need to ask is, what do we do in the midst of of persecution. Last week we we talked about what happens when our enemy crosses the line and and we looked at this curious word called hate found it's used three different ways in the Old Testament it can mean love less it can actually mean hate as one that is hate that is steeped in in as Peter said the gall of bitterness or as I say, the the cesspool of bitterness. (coughs) And the third kind is that type of hate that is perhaps at least in our language better understood to mean fiercely opposed. God hates the wicked. God is fiercely opposed to the wicked. David even says, I hate my enemies who hate you. 
with a perfect hatred. And, and we looked at that. That doesn't mean like the extreme utmost animosity and hatred, but rather the, the fullest, most complete type of hatred. And that is the type of hatred that God possesses. It, it's better translated, fiercely opposed. And we began to ask this question, which was our second point. What do we do when this enemy that we are now needing to fiercely oppose, the third type of hate, what we do when he crosses the line? And that line demarcates God's given responsibility to us. And we looked at a couple of areas of responsibility And do we just let them come in? Do we just let them cross this line and be nice? You know, can I just say that Jesus' purpose in life was not to be nice? He he spoke very specifically to the Pharisees we saw last week and called a spade a spade. They understood it as insults. You whitewashed tombs. You unmarked graves. You look good on the outside, but you're filled with poison. On the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You are hypocrites. And he called a spade a spade. And yet this God of love, Jesus, spoke so firmly, we might even say harshly, wow, Jesus, really? And we would have to say, that is love. That is love. And so we had to just take a moment and maybe redefine a bit what love truly is. However, may I suggest that the devil, too, has a line. And if you cross his line, he will fiercely oppose you. He will not only fiercely oppose you, but he will vehemently hate you with bitterness And he will do everything he can to take you down. We call this, and we see it actually throughout the Bible, and and truly, if you read Revelation, it's so easy to get caught up in end times events. And and really, much of the focus in Revelation is this concept of persecution. Turn with me to Revelation 2.10. While you're turning there, as we understand the devil is doing whatever he can, to oppose us when we cross his line that demarcates his kingdom. Remember, he is trying to protect his people. And all of us at one point were his people. Every single one of you at some time in your life belonged in his dominion, his kingdom. You were a slave, scripture says, to do his will. You were ensnared. But God dawned in your heart and you came to your senses and you said, Jesus, I choose to follow you. And you left the kingdom of darkness. And I want to tell you that so ticked the devil off. (laughs) When we witness, when we seek to rescue lost souls, we cross his line. And he attacks. He gives pushback, if you will. Now, here is my question. And I'm using this to kind of preface what we're going to talk about this morning. But if you are experiencing no persecution, maybe, maybe it is because you are not pushing. Do you understand what I'm saying here? The devil wants you afraid. He wants you to fear persecution. Many times that line is here, but in our minds, in our fears, we draw the line here, and we are truly afraid to cross that line. And consequently, the devil has won, and he has placed that fear in us, fear of persecution, and we do not cross his line. We do not witness. Can I ask you that if your neighbor's house was on fire, and you you looked at it, and you thought, well, you know what? Wow, I would hate to knock on his door. That would be such an inconvenience for him, wouldn't it? And so you rationalize, I don't want to, you know, offend him. I don't want to, I don't want to take up his time. And so you say nothing. And as I'm sharing this story, it truly seems like a silly story. But how far off the mark is it? When we choose to not tell our neighbors not tell our friends, our relatives who are lost and still a part of Satan's kingdom. There is a fire 
and it is consuming you. And unless you repent and turn to Jesus, there remains an eternal fire for you. And I plead with you, follow Jesus. But let's suppose for the moment, actually for the rest of this message, let's assume that you knock on the neighbor's door. Let's assume that you are crossing the enemy's lines. Let's suppose that you pray for the people at your workplace, your neighbors, your relatives, maybe even the very people who live under your roof, and you are praying for them that God breaks through with this powerful gospel and sets them free. You are seeking to be a witness. Did you realize that this Greek word martyros, where we get the word martyr from, literally means witness? It only later was identified to, to mean martyr, someone who witnesses to the point of sacrificing their life. Martyrs are those who experience persecution because they cross the devil's line and his vengeance is your death. You are a martyr because you are a witness to him. Revelation 2.10, it says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. This is Jesus speaking to those in Smyrna. Polycarp, my family just watched a movie recently about Polycarp, and in 155 AD, Polycarp was burned at the stake because he was a martyros, a witness, but a witness to the point of death. He was a martyr. He experienced this very same type of suffering that Jesus is telling that you're going to suffer. And actually, as you read through the book of Revelation, it's filled with suffering and Christians who are suffering at the hand of Satan. And please understand, <coughs> my initial point here is that the suffering that you receive, and it may come to you in the form of persecution, or it may come to you in the form of simply hardships that you are experiencing because you're wanting to be a witness, you're wanting to, sh to shine your light, and the devil is doing everything he can to quiet you and shut you up and to be able to render you inoculated and neutralized if he can so that you do not reach in, cross the line, and rescue souls who are lost in his darkness. Persecution or hardships, they all come from who? The hand of Satan. That is, that's Jesus' point here. Your persecution, it's not, the, it's not the neighbor, it's not the boss that you have, it's not that co-worker that you have that constantly derides you and, and gives you a nickname that you can't repeat in public uh, because you're a, a witness for Christ and he feels convicted and he doesn't like it. And in fact, he hates you because guess what? You, you crossed his line with the truth of the gospel and you receive persecution. It's not at the hands of men, though it appears that way in the flesh. It is at the hands of Satan. So Satan is behind all of this. And Satan's goal is to push back and to keep you ineffective. Can I ask you, in what areas of your life or work or being a neighbor do you fear persecution or criticism? It many times comes in the form of criticism. <laughs> and your tendency or temptation is to back off. When I, was at the, when I was at the University of Delaware, I believe I was a junior at the time, I was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. I met my wife there, actually. And they had a strategy in what they called adopt a dorm. And the purpose was very strategic. And I believe in strategy. The devil has a strategy. I'm going to talk about it in, a, in, a, in just a bit. But God, I believe, wants his people to have a strategy, a plan. How are you, how are you going to... I mean, Op forces, when they go into a country behind enemy lines, 
Do you think for a moment that they have a plan? Of course they do. In, in war strategies, in the natural, there, are, there, there is a plan in this rescue, this, this plan to evangelize if you in the spiritual. Of course we see it as well. So here I was, I was a junior, I decided... <laughs> I'm going to go on campus. I was a commuter at the time. I'm going to go on campus. And uh, within one semester, money ran out. I, I couldn't do it anymore after that. But I had a roommate, and his name was Rob. Rob was caught up in Christian science. All of his life, that's all he knew. And over the weeks and even months, <coughs> as I began to get to know Rob and, and share my testimony with him, what I believe the call of my life was, and sharing Christ with him, uh, we began to focus on some differences, and he would often ask me question after question. And I remember one particular night, he and I were sitting at my desk, and we were going over the scriptures. In Christian science, they do not believe in the reality of sin along with many other false teachings. And as I was going through these, I asked him, I said, when, when we go over these scripture passages, do you feel that I'm misinterpreting them? Do you feel as if I'm twisting them and making them say something that they really aren't saying? And he said, no. I, have ne I never knew this was in the Bible. Because all I read is my Christian science monitor and, and their interpretation of these scripture passages. I never read the Bible. I never knew that sin is real and that Jesus came to pay for my sin. And I said, Rob, your life can be totally changed right now if you turn to Jesus. And he, he paused, and, and there were tears in his eyes. And he said, you know what? I need to confess to you, my entire world is being shaken right now. And I need to think about this. And I said, Rob, that's, that's fine. Because you need to count the cost. Because if you choose to follow Jesus the way the Bible teaches, you can't go back to Christian science. Jesus is right now calling you out of it. And he went home for that weekend. And he came back the following Monday. And I said, Rob, so tell me, what do you think? And he said, well, you know, I, I spoke to one of the leaders in my Christian science gathering. And he said to keep reading the Christian science monitor and not to listen to you. And so that's what I'm going to do. And my heart sank I was like, man, church, the devil has a strategy and he wants to ruin people's lives. I had to move off campus, as I mentioned to you, in the course of the next semester. I said, Rob, I haven't seen you in a while. Let's catch up. And I knew that Rob had even, <coughs> when he was my roommate, fairly good guy, but he was getting involved in the party scene away from home. And he would go to parties and he'd come home late and I could tell that he was drunk. And I would pray for him, and, and so I wanted to catch up with him. Rob, how are you doing? He had just gotten a girlfriend, and et cetera, et cetera. And I sat there, and, and, and I said, Rob, where are you at with the claims of the gospel? And he had not budged, and it broke my heart, and I challenged him. We were sitting in the cafeteria of the University of Delaware, one of their cafeterias, and the table next to us, and the tables were joined. The, so she, the, the girl was probably two seats over, her entire table, and this girl turns to me, and she says, what the blankety blank do you think you're trying to do? Can't you tell that he doesn't want to listen to you? What makes you think that you're right and he's wrong? And she just went on a rampage and the entire table, she was so loud, was staring at me as I was trying to talk with this guy and I wanted to say, just shut up so I can reach out to this guy. But I knew that that would probably be a little bit offensive. So I had to try and word it differently. And when I was finally able to turn the conversation back to Rob, 
and I'm not going to tell you what I said to her, honestly, because I don't remember, but I, I think I was at least a little gracious, but Rob said, you know what, Mike, I really don't want to talk about this anymore. Conversation shut down, and I never saw Rob again. At that moment in which that girl turned her venom, her animosity toward me, there was something inside of me that said, maybe you should shut up. Maybe you should just let this go. You've crossed the line, Mike. And I did. I crossed the line. I crossed the enemy line, and I got pushed back. But I was tempted to shut it down. I was tempted to just let him go. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that story in just a, a little while. I want you to turn to Galatians 6, 17. And I want you to know that crossing enemy lines, seeking to rescue the lost, yes, you will be persecuted. You're going to be. It may come in the form of something physical. It may come in the form of criticism like I got. <laughs> but its sole goal is for the devil to keep you from crossing that line again. As we look at Galatians 6, 7, <coughs> Paul has something that, in my opinion, is just very fascinating. And it's, it's only in one verse, one sentence. And this is what he said, Galatians 6, 17. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of, of Jesus. Understand, Paul is preaching the gospel. Judaizers from Jerusalem had come to Galatia and had tried to persuade the people who had come to Christ to be circumcised, to observe the, fest the Jewish festivals, to observe the law, and to be able to add to faith good works because this would be necessary for their salvation. And so, Paul is, is, is a mother bear here, protecting her cubs. And he is giving pushback and he is saying to those enemies, you can't do this. This is wrong. But he received tremendous criticism, even persecution from fellow Jews. And he says, finally, let no one cause me trouble because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. These marks are the persecutions, the whippings. The, the, in Lystra, he was actually stoned and taken up for dead. Um, <coughs> tremendous number of beatings. But he says, in essence, careful, don't attack me. Because I've been beaten up before, and as a matter of fact, I bear the marks of all of these beatings. Would that intimidate you? <laughs> okay, so what you're telling me is for me to back off because you've been beaten up before. <laughs> that only encourages me to want to attack you more. But you see, there is, there's a word that's used in this verse, and it's that word for mark or marks. The Greek word you might be familiar with this. We use it in our own language. It's stigma. The word stigma in the Greek literally is that mark or that brand that was put on the ear of a slave to mark him as being owned by his master. It's used only here in the New Testament. Paul, in essence, is saying, look, you guys, all of these persecutions that I have received, they are my brand marks that I belong to Jesus. And because I belong to him, guess what? You ain't dealing with me. You are dealing with him. Okay? I remember a time in which I was bad-mouthing this, this bully in our neighborhood. My, my friend Greg Carr and I, we were just bad-mouthing this bully. We thought we were all that and, and a whole lot more. And we start bad-mouthing him, and, and he says, okay, guys, I am going to thump you. Who wants to be first? And we looked at each other, and we thought, okay, we could, we could do one of two things. We could either split up and run, 
but he was faster than us, and so that meant it was a 50-50 coin toss. He was going to get one of us, and he was going to pound us, and neither of us wanted to be that person. Or we could shut up. We were foolish and chose to do neither (laughs) because I saw in the back my big brother, Ken, who's 10 years older than me, and here I am, I'm 10, about 10 years old, and full of pride, and, and, and so I began to say, oh yeah, oh yeah, well you are this and you are that, <laughs> and the guy says, uh, yeah, what are you going to do about it? And he starts after us, but as soon as he takes that step, he feels a hand on his shoulder, <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> to my rescue. <laughs> and my brother, Ken, managed to swing, but the guy was too quick and ran home. <laughs> and I'm sure that our laughs helped him along the way. But the truth is, for me, my brother, Ken, was my protector. And that wasn't the first time that he came to my rescue. <laughs> I could tell you about the time in which they cornered me in the alley, a number of them, and managed to jump over the fence just in the nick of time out of their reach. But the truth is, Jesus is your protector. Don't go bad-mouthing the people in, in Satan's kingdom. I'm not encouraging you to do that. But I am encouraging you, if you cross his line, you may well bear in your body the marks of Jesus. As a matter of fact, in, in the book of, of, of Acts, in chapter 541, it tells us that the, uh, the apostles were persecuted and before they were let go, they were severely flogged. That meaning the 40 lashes minus one and it can take you within an inch of your life and it shreds your back and they do not go limping back to their homes. Listen to this. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Wow. They rejoiced? Yes, because they bore in their body the brand marks of Jesus. They were counted worthy to share in the very sufferings of Jesus. Jesus said, if you follow me, the world's going to hate you. And I know this because they have hated me. And if you follow me, they will hate you too. Paul himself, it says, bore in his body these brand marks. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 6, Paul tells us, excuse me, 12.7, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations that he'd mentioned in the previous six verses, there was given me a thorn in my flesh. Now, obviously not a literal thorn. What is this thorn? A messenger of Satan to torment me. That doesn't mean that it was a mental torment. It's not some psychotic episode that he would frequently have, this demon that was assigned to him from Satan, King James says, was a buffeting spirit, a tormenting, a torturing spirit, a harassing spirit. It pursued him. It says three times I prayed that God would remove this monkey off my back, this demon that followed me and harassed me. And God said, nope. My grace is enough for you, Paul. What were some of these torments that this demon hurled at him? (coughs) Paul spends an entire paragraph describing them, starting in verse 23. Halfway through, he says, I have worked much harder, that is, than these false apostles, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Again, what, what, he, what he's doing here is he's trying to demonstrate to them, here are my credentials for being your apostle, 
for being a father in the faith to you. Does he talk about his miracles? No. Does he talk about his surpassingly great revelations and going into all, any and all detail? No, only so much as to say that God spoke to me and now I'm speaking to you. That's it. Does he, does he trump up his character and what an awesome man of God he is? Nope. He says, you want to see my credentials as far as why I know that I have been called to minister to you? In essence, he's saying, see the marks of Jesus on my body? Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus five times the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And understand 2 Corinthians was written before the shipwreck of Acts 27 that Luke records. So Paul had experienced in his lifetime a minimum of four shipwrecks. Three times I was beaten with, excuse me, I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. These are Paul's brand marks. God's marks on his life that he belongs to Jesus. And I'm going to encourage you now that the persecutions that you go through in the course of your witness in this world, own them proudly. Own them proudly. Now, the reality is, most of us don't go through persecutions nearly like this. We just don't. You go into other countries, you read about it from at the hands of ISIS every day. Those Christians do had one gentleman in our network of churches who's written a book. He's been an apostle in Vietnam. He's been, uh, I, I believe he's been kicked out of Vietnam, and so he has to minister through another country. And he, has been in, he was in prison, I believe it was for 10 years. And he, he pastors a small network of churches that is well over 10,000. He's a man about my age. And he has far surpassed me in this area of ministry. And he has never backed down from persecution. In those instances, that type of persecution, may we never know that. We face different types of persecutions. And I'm going to suggest we probably fear them more. And they are criticisms, the fear of losing our job. And we heed those persecutions and those challenges from the world, really from the devil, we heed them well, don't we? And we don't cross that line. We don't want to go into enemy territory. And we are so, so very cautious. But my question is, should these criticisms and persecutions come, what should we do? How do we respond? What should our attitude be? <coughs> The author of Hebrews <coughs> says in chapter 10, verse 34, or excuse me, starting, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> starting with verse 32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light, after you crossed the enemy land and came into the kingdom of light, is what he is saying. When you stood your ground, in a great contest in the face of suffering, this type of suffering is persecution. They went back and they crossed enemy lands, going the other way to rescue lost souls. Verse 33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult. Some of us have, yep, okay, we can relate. And persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property 
because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. They were willing to suffer regardless of how intense. And may I just say that Hebrews was prob it was definitely written before 70 AD and probably, probably during the reign of Nero, during the greatest persecutions. You endured this and you welcomed these persecutions, stood side by side with those who were insulted and, and those who even lost their property, lost everything that they had. And why? Because you had a better possession waiting for you in heaven. Now turn with me to Revelation 13. <laughs> you see, the purpose of Satan's attacks is to discourage us and to neutralize us. But how does he do it? He lies about God. He lies about his character. You can't trust God. He doesn't really love you that much. Why would he rescue you? Why would he be able to make anything good of this? Maybe he's really opposed to you. The devil is number two. He's going to try and rob you of hope. He's going to make it seem as if your investment in others is worthless. Why? Why sacrifice for so little? As a matter of fact, for nothing. He'll try and convince you of that. Are you there in Revelation 13 now? This talks about the beast, and my purpose is not to get into any kind of teaching about the beast. I don't have nearly the time, and I'm not sure it would be so beneficial. But I do want to say this. In Revelation 13, 6, it says concerning the beast, he opened his mouth, to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints. Notice it does not say authority. But he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority, because they're in his kingdom, over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So the beast slanders God and his name, that is his character. He's not trustworthy. He doesn't love you that much. Do you really think that if you cross the enemy lines, he's going to rescue you? I don't think so. You might lose your job. You might have a bad reputation. And it says he, he slanders his name and his dwelling place. I did this with the teens the other day, Jim and I, talked about heaven and had everybody picture in their minds what when you think about heaven what do you see many of you know clouds uh, pearly gates of course the pearly gates are always in the clouds right saint peter at the front gate tons of jokes about that um you, you, you see a lot of harps, don't you? And these cute little cherub that the Bible never talks about, that's man-created. And honestly, just about everything that people, the world, but even Christians think about when they think about heaven is completely unbiblical. Satan has sufficiently slandered heaven. That's what he's saying here. It, it has happened even in our day. Most Christians do not know what awaits them in heaven. The new earth and the new heavens. They have no clue what that's going to be like. I'm going to encourage you that the Bible has so much to say. It is absolutely exciting and, and something to look forward to. It, it is absolutely awesome to, when you read through and contemplate the, the, the glories and the excitement and the adventures even of heaven. Even atheists, they'll say, wow, I, I think I would rather go to hell and suffer there than go to heaven and suffer its boredoms. That's the world. 
Unfortunately, that's the church too. Satan has sufficiently slandered heaven. And the reason why this is effective is why should I go through all of this persecution if it's to spend eternity in a really boring place? Is it really worth it? I'm going to challenge you, change your understanding of heaven then. (coughs) Because it's Satan's goal to discourage you and make heaven look absolutely unappealing. And then he slanders those in heaven, the people that you have invested in. They're there because you invested in them, you gave, you shared the gospel, you were willing to cross the line. And for Satan to slander that and, and to say, it's all for nothing. All of that investment, all of the persecution, the time, the prayers, everything that you gave into crossing enemy lines to rescue the lost for nothing. They'll never turn around and follow Jesus. You gotta be kidding me, man. I've got a grasp on them. You think I'm gonna let them go? Well, newsflash, devil. You let go of me, didn't you? That's right. And I'm gonna keep doing this because you're gonna let go of a whole lot more people. And we gotta be willing to rise up and say, I will cross the enemy's lines regardless of the brand marks that I would receive in the form of physical brand marks or criticisms. It doesn't matter. My reputation is nothing on the altar of God to me. Maybe for most of us, our reputation is too much. Charles Spurgeon (coughs) once said (coughs) concerning our response to criticism, he said, get your friends to tell you your faults. That's how you can know your faults. Have your friends tell you your faults. Or better still, welcome an enemy who will watch you keenly and sting you savagely. What a blessing such an irritating critic will be to a wise man. What an intolerable nuisance to a fool. Can you say, ouch? (laughs) An unknown author once said, if a man calls you a donkey, pay him no mind. If two men call you a donkey, look for hoof prints. If three men call you a donkey, get a saddle. I like that. When, when, when someone approaches me and said, dude, I got a really, I got a problem with you, blah, 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 whatever it is. All right, thank you, I appreciate that. If that doesn't line up with what I see, I pay it, no, never mind. If my wife begins to say, you know what, Mike, you should reconsider, I'm going to look for hoof prints. And if someone else comes to me, I'm buying a saddle, okay, they're right, I need to change. You see, the, even the enemy Satan, through his criticisms, can actually help us. You know, I think too often our friends are so kind and loving to us, they can tend to placate us. And it's the enemies that many times are often genuine. Hmm. You see, even an enemy's criticism can serve God's purposes. Even an enemy's criticisms can serve God's purposes. I I think we need to be careful here because not all criticism or persecution really is persecution. And we need to sort through this. It may be that we need to pay no never mind, and it may be that we need to buy a saddle. I I know for many new believers, when when they go to work, (laughs) they'll walk up to some unbelievers and say, hey guys, can you please not cuss in front of me? Or they'll walk up to a group of people and interrupt a little joke-telling time and say, I'm sorry, can you please not make crude jokes around me. And they receive a lot of criticism for this. Now, if that is you, can I suggest that what you have just done is you have said, I'm sorry, I know you're not a Christian, 
but can you please act like a Christian? I'm sorry, I understand that you're lost in the power of sin, but please can you not sin? That's kind of what we're telling them. And I'm wondering just how effective that is. And we can confuse pointing people's sins out in the marketplace with evangelism. I don't see them line up too well. Now, it can affect cussing, crude language, crude jokes, can affect the atmosphere in a workplace, and I understand that. It's probably more helpful that you ask the boss if he could address it. He's the one in authority. He's the one who can change the thermostat and monitor it better than you. Our job is to point them to Jesus. I can almost guarantee you they know that they're sinners. They may need a little help, but by telling them, I'm sorry, can you please not cuss around me? I want you to see what you have just communicated. You are better than them. Can you please act nicer? Can you please live a certain way and cater to my sensitivities, please? I have chosen myself not to do that unless it gets really out of hand or in case one of my family members is with me or another child is there. I will simply say, hey, guys, you know what? There's children here. But we live in a fallen world, and there's sin everywhere. Correcting their sin is not evangelizing them. Having said that, understanding, I hope, what evangelism truly is, I want us to look at this last passage in 1 Samuel 18. Here, and I need to be brief, but here, David, two chapters earlier, was prophesied that he would become king. And yet, for years, possibly up to eight to ten years, he was a fugitive in Saul's kingdom. Regularly persecuted, hunted down to be killed. Wow. David led campaigns and was a commander of a thousand. And every one of his campaigns against the Philistines was successful. He was like King Saul's right-hand man. He was destined to be a, the, the military leader, commander of the army, the general. And he was so young, early 20s. And yet, Saul became jealous of him. And Satan soured Saul's heart. And we read in 1 Samuel 18, an interesting passage in which, (coughs) coming back from a campaign... Saul hears the refrain that the people are singing. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But me with only thousands? What more could he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye. On David. Verse 15, it says, When Saul saw how successful he, David, was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. And here's the question I want to ask Why would God allow Saul to rise up against David, the future king, God's truly anointed? and pursue his life, wanting to take it at any unguarded moment, why would God allow this knowing the call of God on David's life? Why would he allow you? Because remember I said that Satan is behind these persecutions, but also the hardships. Satan will pursue you with hardships as well. Satan desires to take you out, neutralize you, do whatever he can so that you stop being effective for God's kingdom. He will slander God, his name, 
heaven itself and the people in God's heavenly kingdom. <coughs> this obviously, when we're asking the question why, would, is an in-depth study and we're not going to do that. I'm going to suggest six quick things here. I'm just going to read them off, so you probably don't want to write them down. But for at least five years, as many as ten years almost, David is a fugitive fleeing for his life. I believe one possible reason for God allowing this is that God's choice of David far exceeded Israel's choice of Saul, and God needed Israel to see this. As a fugitive, David got to know many of the elders of Judah who set him in as king after Saul's untimely death. It was a way of networking, if you will. It instructed David in battle strategies. Number four, it taught David to deal with tough men that were going to follow him. Number five, many of David's early followers, we read about 400 in the cave of Adullam that came to him, they became numbered among his 30 mighty men, including his commander of the army, Joab. Number six, and there are more, but number six, it taught David to not seek revenge or be led by his emotions, but understand God has bigger purposes than I can see. And so he was patient. God was faithful. David was a marked man. He bore on his body the marks of his heavenly father, God Almighty, his protector. But even his persecutions had purpose. Even the hardships that he went through had ultimate purpose, forming in David necessary character, necessary knowledge, battle strategies, skills to be that king that, would, that every king after him would be measured by. Saul, excuse me, Paul, was a marked man as well. But even his sufferings had purpose. Well, how about you? If Satan is attacking you and he's trying to give you pushback, has, has he rendered you vulnerable and incapacitated you? Are you filled with fear of crossing that line? How are you responding? Very first question that we need to ask, and there's three that I, I've got here that I'm going to go through so quickly. The first question you want to ask is, are you pushing? Are you pushing? Get Satan, maybe he's not giving pushback because we're not pushing. Now, I'm not suggesting that if you're a public school teacher, you tomorrow, that tomorrow you go to school and you, you preach the gospel for your entire class time so that you get fired. I'm not suggesting that. There are, there are battle strategies. Satan has battle strategies. God has battle strategies. If you, if you pick up Wormbrandt's book, uh, Tortured for Christ, they had to learn certain evangelistic strategies. They didn't just go to a street corner and start preaching the gospel so they get gunned down. Well, that life would be over quick. Instead, they had strategies he talks about how he would go in, and, and the, the Russian Romanians loved watches. And so he would, he would wear a watch, and he would go into this group of soldiers, and he would start talking about his watch. And <coughs> some of them would have many watches up and down their arms. And they would talk about these watches, and before you know it, he would start evangelizing them. And one of the guys recognized that he was a Christian, and he said, look, here's how we're going to do this. When it's okay for you to talk, you, you just speak. But if I see a soldier come up that I know is going to oppose you, I'm going to put my hand on your knee. Start talking about watches then. And this was a strategy that he used to evangelize. 
the Russian communists. God wants to give you a strategy. He doesn't want you to just step into the devil's camp and get gunned down and receive criticism and get blasted away, get discredited. He wants you to have a strategy. How are you praying? When you go into work, maybe he's calling you to get there a little bit earlier so that you can pray in your office or you can walk through the, the lobby or some other aspect of, of your business and pray over it. Pray for the people. Are you praying for them? Do you pray for them by name? God wants you to pray for people by name, just not, oh God, would you please come and save the world? Next uh, item of prayer. God wants you to pray for your neighbors specifically by name, for your, the people who are lost in your family. Pray for them by name. <laughs> what strategy are you using? Number two, is God perhaps refining your character? Proverbs 27, 6 says, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And maybe in your situation, your enemy really is your friend, your ally in growing in Christ. Have you thought about that? And then number three, is God perhaps training you? Is he building necessary skills, strategies, knowledge, etc., into your life? So you can be more effective in his kingdom. I know when I was trying to reach out to my ex-roomie, I realized Satan had a strategy. And I stepped right into it. I made the mistake, number one, of having a lunch with a lot of people around who would hear our conversation. And Satan stirred up this girl and highly vocally, and she was vocal, to criticize me and shut down the conversation so that when I tried to turn the conversation back to Christ, my ex-roommate Rob said, no, we're done. And I realized, you know what? I should have thought ahead and I should have planned this to be a one-on-one -on -one meeting with nobody around. That's what I needed to do. Another thing is that it taught me not to back down. What was the worst thing that could happen? I was known as a Jesus freak. I was known as being some religiously obnoxious person. I think they'd be wrong, but I can understand the world seeing that. They would see me as a bigot, as someone who thought I was right. Well, I knew that I was because the Bible tells me that I was. That's not proud. That's just standing on the truth. Second Corinthians 2.11 says, he says to the Corinthians, be careful, don't let Satan outwit you. I want to be a marked man. I want to embrace the sufferings and the persecutions, the criticisms of the world, and I don't want to back down. And yet there is something in me, yes, in me, that fears that criticism and that persecution and certain people that I respect looking down on me and say, what are you bringing that up? This is, a, this is a place of business, Mike. And I have to admit, I fear that. And I don't want to. I want to be able to have that attitude that the apostles did. They rejoiced. Counted worthy to suffer for my Savior. Are you a marked man? Are you a marked woman? Do you bear in your body the marks of Jesus and do you wear them proudly? Are you willing and eager to cross enemy lines? Are you praying? Are you strategizing? Are you doing everything within your ability to embrace the call of God on your life and to go behind enemy lines and by God's grace rescue those who are caught in his deceptions? This is our purpose, our consuming purpose in life. We love them with the love of Jesus, and we are bold with the truth of Jesus. Are you a marked man, a marked woman? Stand with me. Father, I ask that you would give us as your people great boldness. 
great boldness, that God, you would remove this fear in our hearts. God, so many times, Father, I've been afraid to cross the line, and when I crossed the line, there was no backlash at all. And the fear was for nothing. And other times I did cross the line, and I got it. The bottom line, God, is it doesn't matter. Please, Father, help us not to play into the hand, into the strategies of Satan, our adversary. He's clever. And I'm asking you, God, that you would please protect our heart and give us this undying passion to pursue you at any cost, any cost, God. The Father, our prayers would be like your servants. Lord, consider their threats and enable me, your servant, to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And God, I am asking you that you would do this in our lives, that we would not hold back, but that we would speak boldly and make Christ known. And in the face of all of these persecutions, however they come, we know they come from Satan, but God, would you please show us your purposes and build those things that count for eternity in us, in the process. Your purposes are good, God. We choose to bear these brands of our Lord Jesus Christ proudly and even with rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.